Revelation chapter 12, and um, very exciting chapter and very enlightening one. A lot of lot of just uh, exciting things. I have to say that very exciting doctrine. And I hope the book of Revelation has been very helpful, and I hope it's trying to just help me give you some clarity to you about prophecy. And, and uh, just the Lord laid on my heart last year, about the, the third and fourth quarter last year, just preaching through Revelation and Isaiah. And I had no idea I'd be preaching it through a virtual audience for the most part there. But uh, we're, we're thankful that God is using it. And I, I pray that it's very fruitful. We don't just take it as just facts. We need to take it as fundamentals. And we need to take it as necessary uh, doctrine for our lives and prepare us for the things to come. And realizing we're seeing prophecy unfold right now, even as we, we're preaching through these books here. And, and we could be the last generation before Jesus comes which it can be looked upon as negatively or it can be looked upon as positive. I'll be honest with you, I look upon it as being positive. If we are the last generation before Jesus comes, we better make the impact, amen? We better make a big impact and a positive impact and a powerful impact upon this generation because I don't want it to be said when we get to heaven that we didn't do everything we could to get the gospel to people there. And just as we saw today as... Um, the Lord was talking about in Revelation 20, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 27, about the, about the root and the blossoming and budding and that the fruit would, would cover the face of the earth. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful during our generation that the gospel made its greatest impact around the world during our generation before Jesus came, uh, comes for us? And I, and I think it ought to be said of that. So let's not be lethargic and uh, get comfortable in our ways. Let's be diligent and roll up our sleeves and serve the Lord. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, you can read aloud at home. As I read the scriptures to you tonight, Revelation chapter 12, and I think we'll read probably about to verse 11 this evening. I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter as best I can, but we're going to go to Revelation 12, and you want to take some good notes. Pull down the notes if you would right now, because we're going to see some things that you need to be informed about tonight. Revelation chapter 12. Remember now, the seven trumpets have been sounded as we get to this, and we ended chapter 11 with the phrase, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings an earthquake, and great hail, symbols of judgment. And where there's symbols of judgment, let me just say this. There needs to be a movement of urgency in the heart of God's people. And in verse 1, would you notice this? There appeared a great wonder in heaven. In heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Who is this woman? And she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, in pain to be delivered. Now, before we see the delivering of this child that's described here, we get another glimpse. And there appeared another wonder. Now, you might want to just synonymously, both times, is talking about a sign. The Jews require a sign. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. For to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, or if you would, 1,260 days, or if you would, three and a half years. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent, Satan's been around a long time, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast out, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. I'll call your attention to verse 7. The title of this message is The War in Heaven. God just happened to work out that we spoke a little bit about Satan this morning. And we're going to speak about Satan tonight, though he's not the focal point. Satan should never be the focal point. Jesus Christ should always be the focal point. Everybody talked about what matters. Jesus Christ is what matters. Jesus is Lord. You worry about Satan, nothing ever gets fixed up. You focus on Jesus, everything gets right. We want to see the war in heaven tonight. We need to pay particular attention this evening because we're going to see a glimpse into some aspects of Bible prophecy are very critical for us to understand how God is orchestrating everything going on. Father, bless your word tonight. Use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Revelation 12 presents to us the strategic place of Israel in prophecy. The Great Tribulation is God's judgment on the world and in Israel. God, is, God wants everyone to get saved. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, he was so burdened for his own people to get saved. He said, I wish myself accursed, anathema, 
for their salvation. And I want you to park on that for just a moment. Whatever your ethnicity is, do you feel like Paul, that your own people, your own kinsmen in the flesh, would get saved? Do you have such an intensity, such a burden? Because Paul knew that God's will for his life was that he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But to say and put in writing, I wish myself accursed for my kinsmen in the flesh that they might be saved. And to say later on in Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And whatever your ethnicity is, do you pray for the people of your ethnic heritage, for their salvation? Does it burden you? Does it grip you? Does it concern you for their salvation? I spoke this morning about symbolisms, and the Bible's rich in it. Don't run from symbolism. Learn your Bible. Learn what symbolism is. Let us teach you about symbolism. And you're getting, by the way, if you just stay in church, and get into the preaching of God's word, you'll learn all about that. And so in, in this passage of scripture tonight, we see some more symbols. We see specifically a woman, a man-child, and a dragon. We notice in this chapter that the adjective great precedes several descriptions tonight, several nouns. We see a great wonder, a great red dragon, a great war, great wrath, and a great eagle. I don't know about you, but I got to study this, man. That got me excited. It got me all fired up. Because you know when God does those things, he wants us to dig into his word. He wants us to ask, Lord, what's this all about? You know, a lot of things are happening right now that are stirring emotions. And I'm going to preach to young people for just a minute. Young people get stirred up in the emotions about the emotion of a moment. What you should be asking, what does the Bible say about that? What's the scripture say about that? Before you jump on the bandwagon for anything, test what is going on in our world to what the Bible says. Don't get caught up in the emotion of something because you don't want to be someone that accidentally jumps on something and says, oh, I didn't know this, what the Bible says about the matter. And when I read chapter 12, even though it's talking about prophecy, I can base my emotions, my excitement, that this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. I'm going to tell you tonight, the most relevant thing about living today is the Word of God. The Word of God is relevant. The Bible is truth. Listen, when you look at things, you better look at, is it truth or is it a lie? Because the devil is a deceiver. And the devil wants to point us in a direction to get us distracted from Jesus Christ. Listen, if you get more excited about, more concerned and fired up about ideology than you do about bibliology, you need to check your heart out. Bibliology ought to concern us. Prophecy ought to concern us. 
Preaching of God's word ought to concern us. And listen, you say, by the way, Pastor, you've been preaching pretty, pretty hard while we're having virtual church. Yeah, because you need to get back in the building and you need to get back under preaching and you need to feel the heat of God's word working your heart. We need the fire of God to come down. We need to be in a place of perpetual revival in our lives. We're going to have a great summer as a church. It's going to be a fiery summer. We're going to have some preachers come in. They're going to preach the socks off you. You're going to say, well, I'm not going to join it. Yes, you will. You'll get a text message from me 60 seconds before the service starts. You better be on. Notice tonight we see the blessing. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Who is this woman? The Bible gives a colorful description. I mean, you think about clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, crowns on her head. Who is this woman? Well, we need to begin, first of all, tonight by telling you who she's not. Amen? This is not a female deity. I'm going somewhere. You better put your seatbelt on. Amen? The worship of female deity can be traced all the way back to Genesis 10 to a man by the name of Nimrod. Hislop, you ought to get his book, The Two Babylons, if you don't have your library. Hislop wrote about this. Now, there are people today, and don't trust everything on the Internet, Internet is not, it's got a lot of different opinions. Hislop documented his things, what he gave us there historically. You might say it was uh, one of the, the earlier books on, on apologetics, if you would, to help us understand uh, uh, just unfolding things. Because I'm going to tell you, there's always been an attack on the Bible, and there's always been an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ, and there's always been an attack on God himself. And so Nimrod what the Bible describes as a mighty hunter before God. That's not a good description. Nimrod married a woman by the name of Semiramis. You can point to the cults and the worship of women all the way back to her. Some of you don't know this. Mary Baker Eddy, remember that name? Christian scientist. She pointed to that verse and said, that's me. I want to tell Mary Baker, Mary Baker Eddy, who's in the grave, that is not true. That is not who it is. It's not a female deity. For years, for years, we have names like Semiramis, Ishtar, Isis, Ashtar, Diana, Aphrodite, Kali, which is in the Hindu religion, Guanyin in the Chinese religion, Chinese Buddhism, the Queen of Heaven, which we find even mentioned, referred to there. I mean, they all point themselves back to those earlier days and Canaanite, Canaanite fertility cults and all of those. They worship these female deities. And then we get to the 3rd and 4th century there, and the Roman Catholic Church took Mary, who was a sinner just like us, and they deified her. This is not referring to any of these women. All of them 
are, all of them, Mary herself was a sinner who needed to be saved. She called God her Savior in her prayer. It's not talking about them. This is not a female deity. And we ought to be concerned as we witness, as we do missions about religions that have a female deity. And I realize we're in a pluralistic society and there needs to be tolerance and all this kind of stuff. I'm just saying those female deities are the conjectures and imagination of someone's mind. And I remind you today, there's only one God we serve. Only one God we worship. You'll see that this week in 1 Corinthians 8, where there's none other God but God himself. And the Bible says, thou shalt worship none other God. There is none other God. You don't worship a female deity. God never intended for a female deity to be worshipped. The queen of heaven and all the rest like that. That's why God poured his judgment on Israel and Judah separately, because they adopted the queen of heaven and worshipped there. Let me say who this is. This is not also. There are some aberrant teachings out there that said, this is the church. This is not the church. If it's the church, if it's the church, the church did not give birth to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder of the church. So if whoever came up with that crazy idea there didn't really study their Bible out to understand what this is. Now that all being said, because i got a lot to cover tonight, let's talk about who this is. This is Israel. The woman in this passage is Israel. If you never knew that, you want to write that in your part your Bible there tonight. This is Israel speaking about there. Well, you say, preacher, what about the sun and the moon? Well, go back to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, when Joseph stood before his brothers and he told them, he said, now I saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars doing obeisance to me, okay? These are the, these are the originations of, you would, of Israel, and we're going to see that tonight. But Israel here, if you would, this is a description. Everything here is a description about Israel. Everything about this woman here is about Israel. Notice in verse 2, she being with child cried, travailing in birth. One of, the, one of the symbols you find recurrently, and it just happens to be, the Lord led me to preach to Isaiah this year. One of the symbols we find recurrently, we just saw this last week. And we see maybe at least two other times in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, you might turn there. Isaiah 26, verses 17 and 18, notice this. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery and is in pain and cried on her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, and we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have, and not, we have not wrought any deliverance in the earth and have not the inhabitants of the world fallen. Israel is always pictured as a woman in travail. Now in the context here, Going all the way back to Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God announced to Eve that she would, in, her, in the birthing process, that every woman would have travail. When Eve gave birth to Cain, you studied out, if you've studied through Genesis, when she gave birth to Cain, the name that she gave to him, in her heart and mind, she thought, that was the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah. She thought he was the Messiah. And the heart of, of man, and especially with the Jewish population, the, or the starting point with Israel, has been a desire for the Messiah to come. They have travailed in pain for the Messiah to come. They've had many, many different times where, throughout their history where they've wanted the Messiah to come, especially Bible history as we look at it here. Now, 
God's, Israel's beginning, as we know, began with Abraham. We don't have time to go through all the scriptures, but beginning in Genesis 13, and repeated in Genesis 15, repeated again in Genesis 17, and Genesis 18, at least four different times, God reminded Abraham that he would bless him with seed and with soil and a society. He told him that he would bless him with the nation, and that nation would be with Israel. And you remember there that, God, that, that Isaac would be the start of that. So the, we know that the Jewish nation would begin with him. And God gave him the Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis chapter 15. God himself cut that covenant. Israel is God's chosen people. Listen to the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto him himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now when God chose Israel, he chose Israel to be his vessel, his conduit, by which he wanted to get the message of God about himself out throughout the world. They were in the Old Testament God's chosen people. They were special to convey the message of God, to convey that there was a God in the world. The world had gone into idolatry, and he had to have a people. He pulled Abraham out of idolatry and the worship of the moon and he brought him to this place where beginning with Abraham that they would be a special people to bring the message of God. Notice in Romans chapter 9 he says this, in Romans chapter 9 verses 3 to 5, for I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Notice this, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. In Isaiah 46, 13, Israel is called, Israel, my glory. Israel, the blessing of God is on the nation of Israel. God chose them to be a special called out people. Now we know because Israel failed God. God has chosen the dispensation we're in to use the church. You must be very careful not to interpret in the Old Testament that Israel is the church. And you need not, and be very careful in the New Testament, not confused and say that the church is Israel. No, God still loves his people, Israel. But God has chosen in our dispensation that the church, if you don't have that right, all of your Bible interpretations can be all goofy there. The church is God's, God's conduit and people for this generation. That's why we get to the tribulation. The tribulation period is the time when the judgment of God is on this world and on the Jews, but many Jews will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Notice again, we, we read about here that God has blessed him in Isaiah chapter 9. And we saw, as we talked about last week, in 1947, that Israel proclaimed themselves a nation once again. And man, when that hit the headlines, and that just kind of just came off the headlines back in those days, there was no internet. It was just published, published newspapers there. I mean, Israel had established itself as a sovereign nation. And then in 1967, when they had the seven-day war and they established themselves there, I mean, they, just that little nation there has been the focal point of a lot of hatred and a lot of love. And more hatred than love, if you would, there. But I'm just saying tonight, God's blessing is upon Israel. For the church, it's important for as a church that we pray for Israel and that we love Israel. I thank God for our president who took a bold stand in declaring that his, his stand for Israel and his love for Israel. And you, there's a lot of things we may not appreciate about our president, but from, but from a prophetic standpoint, he stood there biblically and he said, you know, I, we're just gonna, we're gonna recognize Israel, if you would there. And that was a good thing. The blessing of God is on Israel. We must pray for Israel. The Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We must realize that 
that God has his work he's still doing in Israel. And most of it will be, will be, will be revealed and unfolded there during the great tribulation. So I'm just saying today, in chapter 12, the woman here is Israel. We see the blessing. Notice, secondly, we see the birth. We see the birth. Verse 5. She brought forth a man-child. <clears throat> the man-child is our Savior, Jesus Christ. No question about that. In verse 5, we see three cardinal doctrines of Christology right there. Three cardinal Christology doctrines. First of all, we see the incarnation. Honestly, honestly, when I refer to the birth of Christ, I like to use the word incarnation. God became man. God became man. The word became flesh. Notice, she brought forth a man child. God chose that Jesus would enter this world through Israel. That's why the Gospel of Matthew is, is strategically the first book of the New Testament. God had that in mind. Because in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is traced, his, his genealogy is traced, his Hebrew genealogy is traced back to back to, to uh, Abraham, and his monarchial, monarchial genealogies traced all the way back to David. Verse 1, I mean, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. I mean, it's right there. And so we see the incarnation, the word became flesh. Secondly, notice in verse 5, we see the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, by the ascensions, we see this. It incorporates for us his death, his burial, his resurrection, as well as ascension. Notice verse 5. And she brought forth a man-child who is to rule the na all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This is speaking about Jesus Christ here. Notice one other doctrine. We see the incarnation. We see the ascension. But another carnal doctrine is the second coming of Jesus Christ. What I mean by the second coming, I'm talking about the literal return of our Lord Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on earth. Notice verse 5 again. This is beautiful. She brought forth a man child, and bear in mind, we are in prophecy. So bear in mind, John has already talked about the washing of our sins by the blood of Christ in chapter 1. He's referred much about the death of Christ. He's referred about the resurrection of Christ and that he's alive in chapter 1. But now we're in the middle of, the, we're in the middle of, of Revelation. We're in the middle of, the, of seeing what's going on, this, the apocalyptic events here and the tribulation. And so in verse 5, he knows that the audience he's writing to already knows about the deity of Christ. So he mentions here about Christ, about again, as we have to see over and over again, Again, that at the tribulation, what we, not, what we need to be careful of is that we don't get so focused on the judgments and all of those things that we forget that there's a conclusion to all that. And Jesus will come to reign. And it describes him who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now circle the word rule because it's a wonderful word there. You know what that means? You know what that word rule means? We get our word pastor from that. Poimano. He's going to shepherd rule the nations. Praise God, amen. He's going to shepherd rule the nations. You won't need churches in the, in the millennium. You know why? Jesus is the chief shepherd and bishop of our soul, amen. He's the great shepherd of the sheep who through the blood of the everlasting covenant makes us perfect and complete to do all the will of God. He, he if you would, will rule. He'll shepherd rule all nations with a rod of iron. I'm reminded tonight as we look at this, I mean, we see the bringing forth of Christ. I mean, God wanted us to see right in the middle there. Strategically, Israel 
the blessing God is on Israel. He's preserved that nation. And there's so much, if you read through Daniel's prophecies and the book of Daniel, there's so much there about that, which we don't have time to get into. But there's so much there. And as we get there through all of the things that Israel went through, we realize how God strategically from his time, no wonder Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time was come, you know, God had a timeline for Jesus to enter this world. There was the right time, right place. And Galatians 4, 4 says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And so we get to chapter 12, verse 5 here, and it's so wonderful. We see the birth, the birthing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth brought out here. She brought forth a man child. And we have to remind ourselves that this was a virgin birth. This was not a natural human father, human mother birth. No, there was no human father involved with it. This was a virgin birth. It was the Holy Spirit of God which enabled her to conceive the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon said. This is so good. Infinite and an infant. Eternal and yet born of a woman. Almighty yet hanging on a woman's breast. Supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms. King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph. Heir of all things, yet the carpenter's despised son. We see the birth. We see the blessing. But notice in verses 3, 4, and 9, we see the belligerent. Do you ever notice when God does something great, the devil always wants to steal the thunder? Do you ever notice that? Ever notice that God does something great? Satan has to throw a curveball at it. That, that's just kind of like, you know, someone who's very well-meaning, and they pour their heart out, and tell you something, and then somebody in the group there has to say something very negative and throw cold water all over that. It's almost like a, a guy proposing to his, to his girlfriend, and uh, instead of focusing on the proposal, she takes a little thing out, starts looking at the ring he puts on her finger, says, well, how many carrots is this? And she, you know, just using that as a, as, you know, as a, as a comparison there. I mean, talk about throwing cold water on the fire there, amen, you know? And the devil, the devil, he knew, because Genesis 3.15 tells us this. He knew when God said, because remember now, and I'm going to say this a little bit later, the devil is very intelligent, but he's not all-knowing. He's intelligent, but he's not all-knowing. And when God told Eve, your seed that child, Jesus, bruised the head of the serpent. He started to shake because his goal was to eradicate the human race. His goal was for Adam and Eve to sin, to bring death upon all men, and he succeeded in that. I want to tell you tonight, the devil is an angry beast. The Bible says he's filled with great wrath. He hates me. He hates this book. He hates this church. He hates everybody on staff at Heritage Baptist Church. He hates every deacon. He hates every Sunday school teacher. He hates every ministry. He hates everything to do. He is filled with great wrath. I'll tell you today, he hates the fact we had a service this morning in the parking lot next door. 
He hates the fact that we're going to reassemble, and he's going to try to fight that the next 10 days here from us reopening. He hates the fact that we're trying to win souls to Christ. I mean, he is one angry character. He is flustered, he is angry, and he is filled with great wrath. Notice this morning, this evening, dragons, that we find the mention of the dragon. There's no question we know this is talking about Satan. Now, dragons, I said this this morning, anywhere you find dragons, anywhere you find dragons, they are portrayed as diabolical, destructive, and deadly. And that's what we see here. He's diabolical, he's destructive, and he's deadly. There is no such thing as good dragons. Get your kid off of Harry Potter. There's no such thing as good dragons. There's no good dragons. I was on a, I was on a, a, a thread somewhere recently. I don't respond to it, but I was on a thread. And I was a next door type of thing. And some parent was asking about some book having to do with goblins and dragons and so forth. And I'm thinking, man, that's just this, the public school system, the public school system, charter school system, the whole, the whole public, the humanistic mindset there. They think that's cute things. Don't get your kids reading that stuff. It gets them thinking about that. And Satan wants you to think that he's a harmless dragon. I'm going to tell you tonight, he is not a harmless dragon. He's a harmful dragon there. Eight times the dragons referred to in this passage. Eight times. Eight times. He's the nemesis in tri the tribulation. He's the empowerment of the beast and the false prophet there in the tribulation. Notice we see his attributes. The color red, color red all through, all, all through the Bible. The color red, especially in tribulation, is referring to bloodshed. He is a murderer from the beginning. He is out for blood. He has the power of death. The very name, look a little bit further down, verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out. The old serpent, he's been around a long time. He's an old serpent. He's called the devil. The word devil means slanderer, diablos. He's called later on the accuser of the brethren. He's up and down between heaven and earth, uh, earth and heaven, going there and accusing, accusing us before God. He has something negative to say. Listen, the devil has nothing good to say about you and nothing good to say about me. Satan, that means our adversary. He's called a roaring lion. He's called an angel of light. He's called that wicked one in 1 John 5, 18. He's an angel of light. He's a deceiver. He walks about seeking who he may devour. He's loud and he's boisterous. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. There is no truth in Satan. Everything pointed to Satan is about, is about lies. Listen, he's the prince of the power of the air. And you think about all the things in the air. Pandemics. The media. You look at all those different things. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. He's the prince of this age. His attributes very clearly point to the fact he's evil. He's wicked. He's deadly. Notice his ability. The Bible describes here in verse 3 that he's got seven heads. And we'll get more into the symbols of that in, as we get to chapter 13 there. But the seven heads speaks about the fact he has extreme intelligence. But he's not all-knowing. Never forget that. Ten horns. Anywhere you read about horns, horns speaks about power. But I want to remind you tonight, he's not all-powerful. Jesus is all-powerful. He's got crowns on his head. They're not diadems. Jesus wears the diadem. He's the God of this world. He's the master deceiver. He's the head of all the hierarchies of evil. We see his attributes. We see his ability. Notice his accomplices. 
The Bible tells us here, let me see here, verse 4. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. The reference there to the stars of heaven are all the demonic entities that report to him. I'm going to tell you tonight, Satan is very well organized. Very well structured. Which is why, as a church and the work of God, we should be well organized and well structured in what we do. Why? Because we don't want to let Satan, who is very well organized, slip in and cause us to make mistakes. And cause us to mess up and be negligent about things. He's very well organized. These are fallen angels. You read over in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, read about how Satan, as, a, as the son of the morning, as he comes out, the morning star, he magnified himself and he has these seven eyes. He talks about, I will ascend to the, uh, to the most high and I will be like the most high. And he led a revolt against God and he brought, he brought a, bunch of the, a bunch of angels alongside him. He influenced them and they lost, their, they lost their holy state, if you would. When they came alongside, the Bible calls them stars of heaven and he grabbed them with him. Some of them are described later on in Jude and 2 Peter as, as being cast into a prison, if you would. They're chained up right now in everlasting darkness. They were very, very wicked demons. I believe some of them are the demons mentioned about there in Genesis chapter 6 there. But be that as it may, there are demons as part of this hierarchy. There, what, what, what is described in Ephesians 6.12, there's the spiritual wickedness in high places and rulers of darkness and principalities and powers. These are demonized, these are demonic entities that are working in different places. They are his subjects. They are working for him. We see his ability. We see his attributes. We see his accomplices. Notice his aim. In heaven, his aim was to dethrone God. He failed. His aim when he got cast out of heaven was to mar God's perfect creation, to corrupt it, to defile it, to kill it. When you read over there in Hebrews 2, verse 10, or verse 9, in 1 John 3, 8, He's the power of death. His goal is eradication. Death. And I want you to think with me, we look at verses 1 to 11 here. The Bible says in verse 6, excuse me, verse 4, that the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Take a moment with me, chronologically, historically. Death occurred when Cain killed Abel. We read through the Bible, Satan has made attempt after attempt after attempt to try to stop the birth of the Messiah. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob, God had predetermined, Jacob would be, the fa- would be, would be part of the, the, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob would be, later on, his name would be called Israel. We read about in Exodus, Pharaoh killed the baby boys. Satan wanted to keep Moses from being born. We go a little bit further on, and we read about King Ahaziah, 
and all his children being killed off. And Athaliah, the, the queen, how the mother of King Ahaziah, she killed all of Ahaziah's children, or so she thought. And Joash was preserved. Listen, had, he, had she succeeded in killing off all of them, she would have cut off a godly seed and a godly remnant. But God kept that from happening. We read later on how the Jews went into Babylonian captivity. We read later on how some of those rulers, like Antiochus, Epiphanes, and people like that, they tried to oppress and kill the Jews. I mean, Satan has been working historically and trying to prevent the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. After Jesus was born, Herod, Herod wanted to kill him. He didn't want to have another king there. And he killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. But God God sent an angel to warn, remember that he sent an angel to warn Joseph, and Joseph arose, and the Bible says he took the, he took the young child and his mother, and never said that he was the father. It said he took the young child and the mother, and he took them down to Egypt to avoid all that. God showed him another way, if you would, the Bible says. And then we read later on at the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he inaugurated his ministry, he had been baptized by, by John, John the Baptist, to show his identification with the Father's mission, and then he went into the wilderness, the Bible says he was full of the Spirit, but he went there to be tempted of the devil. And one of the things the devil told him is, throw yourself down off this precipice because the devil just wanted Jesus to die. By the way, he put a thought, he put a thought into Jesus' mind during a time of fasting and praying. Why don't you commit suicide? Let me remind you right now, we may be in a time of pandemic and you're reading about all these people saying, I'm staying at home, I'm feeling discouraged, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling suicidal. Those thoughts came from Satan. What you ought to do instead of feeling depressed and discouraged and depressed and all of that, you ought to say, thank God I'm saved. Thank God I got a Bible. Thank God Jesus is alive. Thank God Jesus is on the throne. Thank God I can worship and pray to Jesus. I don't have to be depressed and discouraged and filled with all those negative thoughts. I can be filled with positive because positiveness because Jesus said I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Satan is anti-Christ and Satan is anti-Semitic. He's anti-Christian. He's anti-everything that's good about God. So we see the belligerent. We see the battle. Notice verses 7 to 12. There was a war in heaven, verse 7. Michael, who Daniel calls the great prince, He's an archangel by Gabriel. Michael is God's, is God's go-to angel, amen? Michael and his angels, one side. Satan, old Lucifer, his angels on the other side. God pulls no punches. He said they fought. And the dragon and his angels prevailed not. Praise God. Amen. You know what they did? They kicked him out of heaven. Amen. They kicked him out. He said, you're not squatting here anymore. Amen. You're not going to be leeching off of Jesus anymore. Get out. That's what you need to tell the devil. Get out. Get out. Get out of my thoughts. Get out of my home. Get, get rid of this bastard. Get out, devil. They kicked him out. He was war in heaven. He had so much pride inside of him. The Bible says in verse 9, he was cast out into the earth. His angels were cast out with him. Can you imagine that for just a minute? We think of heaven being a place that's beautiful, and it is, and a peace. And there was war in heaven. 
That's why sin cannot come into heaven. When sin came, it brought corruption and defilement. That's why the elements we read about in 2 Peter 3, the elements will have to be burned up the day of God. So Satan got kicked out. He's not in hell. He will be one day. Amen. He'll be in a bottomless pit, and from there he'll be cast into a lake of fire, the deepest place, wherever that might be in the lake of fire, God's going to send him there. But he's not there right now. He's here. He's in earth. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. That's why he's got all these demons going around. And we go from war in heaven to war on earth. The Bible says in verse 10, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. I think God put that there to encourage the church, to encourage those tribulation saints who one day will pick up the Bible and read through it. And they're going to read, oh, it says now has come. Because when Satan came into this world and all that came with it, God had to fulfill his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's war on earth. Satan has declared war on you and me. The Bible says he's called the accuser of the brothers cast out. We had our West Contra Costa uh, Zoom time and Bible study the other night. Brother, I asked Brother Justin to give the message about a great message on, on Job, some thoughts I never even thought about that just really, really encourage our hearts and about, about Job there. And, and, and he mentioned the fact in Job chapter 1, which many of you have read, how uh, Satan went up to before God and started accusing Job. He said, God, if you take away that head, he will curse you. And he said, no, I know my servant Job. He won't curse me. I know him. What do you do? How do you defend yourself against the attacks of Satan? Well, I'm, I'm thankful for what verse, verse 11 tells us tonight. Because the Bible tells us in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He's cast out. He's in earth. He's fighting with us. He's accusing us. He wants us fighting with each other. He wants us fighting in our families. He wants us continuing in a battle because he's fighting with us. But notice the Bible says, even though he accuses us, the Bible says in verse 11, they overcame him. Glory to God, you've got victory through Jesus Christ. Amen? They overcame him. As I said before, they, they, Satan was defeated at the cross. He's defeated your conversion, and he'll be defeated at the end. But verse 11 tells us right here, tells us how the tribulation states and how you and I can find victory over him. Notice if you would, the Bible says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Now the blood of Christ is our cleansing. But it's also our covering. Because Hebrews 10.19 says that the blood of Christ enables us to enter the most holiest of places. When Satan tempts you, plead the blood of Christ over you. When you're about to get into a very difficult situation, plead the blood of Christ over you. Listen, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Hey, listen, the blood of Christ is more powerful than Satan. That shed blood paid the redemption price for all of our sins. It washed our sins away. Satan thought he had killed Jesus, but man, when Jesus came out of the tomb, what an embarrassment Satan was to all of those demons in realizing he was not greater than our Savior. The Bible says they overcame him by the word of their testimony. 
There's a weapon of our covering. There's a weapon of our confession. The word of their testimony. Don't be ashamed to talk about Jesus. Don't be afraid to witness about Jesus. If anything, we need more boldness, not less boldness. Listen, one of the, one of the weapons God has given us is the gospel of peace. The preaching of his word. That is a weapon against the devil. Listen, great revivals. You study the history of great revivals. Where there was great revivals, there was great preaching on the cross, great preaching of Jesus Christ. And where there was great preaching of Jesus Christ, multitudes of souls got saved, and the devil was overthrown. Why? Because you know what the devil wants? He doesn't want somebody getting saved out of, out of sin. He doesn't want them getting saved out of some terrible sin of some kind. He doesn't want them coming to Christ. He wants them to stay the same way. But when they get saved, they're no longer his possession. They're no longer his children. They're children of God, and they're set free in heaven's their home, and their sins are forgiven. And they have victory forever and forever and forever. But notice something else verse 11, 11 tells us. And they love not their lives unto death. The blood of Christ is our covering. Our confession is a weapon. But notice, the Bible says they love not their lives unto the death. That's their courage. I read the story about Jerome. Remember Jerome? Some of you have studied church history. They're going to burn Jerome to the stake for his testimony for Jesus Christ. You know what he said? They put the firewood behind him, and they were going to burn him from behind. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, stop. He had his hands all tied. He said, stop. He says, I don't want you putting the wood behind me. Put it in front of me so I can see the flames while they burn. He was not afraid to die for Jesus. Polycarp was not afraid to die for Jesus. Antipas was not afraid to die for Jesus. I'm just saying today, the Bible says they love not their lives to death. He hates it when someone is courageous in taking a stand for Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you another weapon is not mentioned in verse 11. We have the weapon of our cleansing, and we have the weapon of our covering. We have the weapon, weapon of our confession. And we have the weapon of our courage. But listen, we have the weapon of our comforter, thank God, tonight. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I never looked it up until recently. Do you know the word advocate is the word parakaleo? It's comforter. Another verse that describes the, the, equal, the equality, the unity of the, of the, of the Godhead. The same word that describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Because God, when the devil tells you you're a loser, Jesus says, no, you're not. You're a winner with me. When the devil tells you you failed, God says, no. All things are possible to him that believeth. When the devil tells you your faith is too small, Jesus says, you can try a little harder. You can have more faith. When the devil says God doesn't want to answer your prayers, God just tells you, keep on praying. I remind you today, Jesus Christ the righteous is our comforter. He's our advocate with the Father. Yeah, we're going to have trouble, and yeah, we're going to have fighting, but thank God Jesus there in his high priestly ministry is advocating for you and I. He's going to bat for you. Listen, one of, one of the greatest frustrations we have in life is when we're facing a situation like trying to get our church reopened. 
and trying to find an advocate that, that can be strategically placed in some department there to advocate for us and to speak for us. And, and you know how it is with human beings. You know, somebody doesn't want something to go wrong, and they don't want to get blamed for things, so it's very difficult for someone to say, I'll be your advocate. But thank God that's not true with Jesus. Jesus is our advocate no matter what. He advocates for us no matter what it may be. And I want to give you encouragement. Maybe I'm talking to somebody tonight that's watching my live stream. You're living in such sin, and you've got such a darkened past, and you've got such a discouraging situation. You don't think there's hope for you. I'm going to tell you tonight, there is hope for you because Jesus Christ the righteous is your advocate of the Father. He's pleading with for you that God will have mercy and God will restore you and God will use you. Don't say you're a loser. You're a winner through Jesus Christ. Then notice the bypass tonight. We see the blessing. We see the birth. We see the belligerent. We see the battle. Notice the bypass. Satan hates Israel. The war on earth is against us, but he's also against Israel. At the end of the three-and-a-half-year period of the Great Tribulation, he breaks his peace pact with Israel. Read about that in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, because he's running amok during the Tribulation. Inhabitants of the earth, you find that repeated over and over again. It's talking about everybody on planet earth. For it says, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath. He's one angry character. He is ticked off. Because he knows that he has but a short time. Now if the devil knows he has a short time, does that bother you that we also have a short time? Does that stir you to do more for God because we have a short time? The devil knows he has a short time. And so look at verse 13. He turned his attention. He didn't get discouraged. The devil doesn't get discouraged, by the way. Just mark that down. And he doesn't get depressed and go look for a psychologist to, to prescribe to him some antidepressant medications. He takes out his fury on other people, you and me. And here it's on the Jews. And notice in verse 13, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Well, we saw some of that through the Holocaust, did we not? And during the trade tribulation, he breaks the peace pact with Israel. And he starts killing off those 144,000 witnesses and those who believe on their word. We read about that in Revelation chapter 6. He persecutes and he's killing. There's going to be mass beheadings during that great tribulation time. The blood will flow. So we see something very interesting. Look at verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. And I used to read that, and then I got to studying it. And I got like the old southern boy, like old Vance Haver did. I took off my shoes and my socks, and I started to have a Pentecostal dance. Amen? I got excited about that. Because it reminded me, God said, I will bear you on eagle wings. God promised Israel, God promised Israel, my grace is sufficient for thee. And the picture there of those eagle wings is God's grace being sufficient. 
and adequate and complete. And God just said, you know, Israel, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hurt. But I want you to know at the right time, right place, I'm going to bear you on eagle wings. And the Bible says here that God took them. We're not sure how he did that. He's going to do this. But they were given to them two wings of a great eagle. Whoever, whatever the number of Jews are that are in Israel, they're going to realize the persecution is so great, they're going to make a mass exodus. I'm not sure how it's going to happen. I'm not sure it's going to be a literal airplane they're going to get on or airplanes they're going to get on. We don't know. We just know they're going to take flight. And the Bible says they're gonna. That the Bible says that she might fly into the wilderness. Now, many people believe that the area of Petra is where they're going to be. Petra is an area south of the Dead Sea. It's very desolate. It's rocky. It's got many caves. It's just a very. It's a very desolate area. Many, many historian, biblical uh, uh, theologians believe it might be there. But it says something interesting. Wherever this wilderness place is, where she'll be in hiding. And Jesus talks about that a little bit in Matthew 24, as we'll see. That he says that she'll go there where she is nourished for a time and times and a half. Now look down later on, verse 16. The time and times and a half is talking about the remaining three and a half years of the tribulation period. For three and a half years, I mean, Satan is pouring out his fury on her. I mean, you read over in Ezekiel about the, about the northern African nations and Turkey and, and, and Russia coming down. And if you would, these nations coming together, the stand nations assembling together and fighting with Israel. And God defeats them there. She's going to be persecuted. The headlines... On the internet and on the news will be about another war there in Israel. But each one of them, God prevails. For three and a half years. For three and a half years. I mean, whatever Israel has gone to up to that point is nothing compared to the next, those three and a half years. And the Bible says something interesting. She's in this wilderness. Did you notice verse 16? And then verse 14? The earth... Help the woman. Why was that? Because the Bible describes in the previous verse that Satan's going to send forth a flood. Now, we don't know if it's a literal flood. I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. But it's going to be a flood of persecution, that's for sure. A flood of persecution and a flood of hurt. He says he'll cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. And I just can imagine that anything that comes out of the mouth of Satan is wicked and vile and sinful. And it could just be all the mis- maligning and things. And, and she's under great persecution. Listen, if Israel's hated right now, you just wait till that three and a half year period of time. She's going to be the most hated nation on planet earth. Everyone's going to aim their nuclear missiles. If they have nuclear weapons, they're going to aim it at here. If they're going to, they're, they're going to, if they can, if they're recruiting people to join a, an, uh, the, uh, an army to fight against her, I mean, people are going to volunteer to fight her. And she has to go in seclusion somewhere where, where the devil can't bother. And the most amazing thing here, she is nourished for three and a half years and the earth helpers. Now, who is that? Who, in the, who is the earth? I believe when we get to Matthew 25, And we read about the sheep nations and the goat nations. Those sheep nations are those nations on earth who help Israel, who are blessing. You read that yourself in Matthew 25. Another time we'll preach about that. But it's those nations who come alongside of her to help her. Those are the nations who will make it through the tribulation and will be allowed to enter into, if you would. They'll they'll get saved, if you would. I believe these are people that are influenced, the nations that are influenced by these 144,000 evangelists. Let me just say this to you right now. I believe that those 144,000 evangelists that God's going to raise up from the 12 tribes of Israel, I believe there are going to be some very intelligent people among that midst. I believe there are going to be some doctors. There are going to be some scientists. And there are going to be some lawyers. 
lawyers, and they're going to be some billionaires, and they're going to be some rich people among them. They're going to realize they lived a lie and believed a lie and were deceived all that time. And when they hear those evangelists preach and they get saved, they drop everything they're doing to get the message out because they're going to read the Bible, and they're going to realize they don't have a lot of time. And many of those people will be influencing other people. And whoever those nations are, they'll be friends of Israel. And the Bible says they'll nourish her and they'll help her. Listen, Israel, God is going to take good care of Israel during that tribulation period of time. God's going to take good care of her. Even though the devil persecutes her for three and a half years, she's going to be nestled. And if it's in that Petra Crag area, if it's somewhere there, she's going to be well taken care of there. She's going to be nourished and cared for. And the earth will help her. Praise God. God loves his people. Amen. The earth helped the woman. The earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Praise the Lord for that. You agree, Matthew 24, verses 15 to 21. I don't have time to read it right now. And it tells us in verse 15 the timing of all that. He says, when ye, and he's talking to the Jews. Remember, Matthew 24, the context of it, he's talking about Israel and the Jews. He says, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, it's most likely a large image of the beast. But I believe beyond that, I'll be, I believe there will be desecration he's going to do on that very altar to disrespect the Jews. And he talks about the fight they're going to make that we read about here. And he goes on later on by saying, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, this is where we get the term for this, this time period, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time nor ever shall be. The greatest anti-Semitist is Satan. He energized Hitler. And the atrocities Hitler did. But God prevailed for the Jews. We've seen the blessing, the birth, the belligerent, the battle. But you notice as we close tonight, notice the believers. The dragon was wroth, verse 17, with the, the dragon was wroth with the woman. And to make war with the remnant of her seed, I believe that's that 144,000 and all the people that get saved through their ministry. Which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And when I read that last part, honestly, it shook me up. It really shook me up. Those are true believers. Would you notice the exclusivity of their obedience? which keep the commandments of God. I love it sometimes, Brother Erwin brother and Brother Justin and I will sit down and talk, and we've done this when we've done trips together, and we talk about revival. One of the greatest fruits of revival is when God's people are obedient, exclusively obedient. 
Let me tell you tonight, there is no re revival without obedience. There must be complete obedience. And there is no answered prayer unless there's obedience to the Word of God. Let me park and say this tonight. We've been sheltered in place since March 15th. Today is June 12th. We're almost, how many months is that, three months? Have you been a true believer during that time? Can God say, as he'll say about this remnant, that you've kept his word? You fought a good fight? I read that and I thought, my goodness, which keep the commandments of God. You know, the Christian life is not rocket science. It's not overly complex. You know what it is? It's three words, trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I want to help you tonight. We're going to be reassembling here soon. I'm burdened for your soul. This is a time, more than ever, we must obey God. We must obey God. Do you realize what kind of persecution is going on here in the tribulation time? And they're obeying God. And then it says, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me close and tell you tonight some encouraging things in summary. We see God's wonderful grace through the symbol of a great eagle. We see in verse 10 the announcement of God's timing provision never being late. I like what it says, now is come. <laughs> That's good. We see in verse 11 we can overcome Satan by the covering of the blood of Christ by the confession of our faith, and by being courageous in the face of persecution. We see in verse 17, God's people are people of true faith, of great faith. And then I want you to notice a phrase that blessed my heart. Would you go look at verse 6? We talked about this woman being taken by two wings of an eagle, into the wilderness. And I just wrote a God morning devotion. It blessed my heart. Would you notice verse 6, a phrase? And the woman fled into the wilderness, notice this, where she has a place prepared of God. Isn't that wonderful? A place prepared of God. A place prepared of God. Jesus said, as I close, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Listen to this. And I go there to prepare a place for you. God's prepared us a home. God's prepared us a place called heaven. God's prepared a hold for us, a place of fortress. He said, I prepared a place for you. God prepared a place for Israel. He has a place prepared. If it's Petra, 
Praise God. But we don't know. And I want to tell you tonight, for every non-believer, every person that's never been born again, he has a place prepared for you. It's called heaven. Heaven can be your home tonight. You can get saved. Don't look at these prophecies and say, okay, that's great. Be a true believer. The time is short. Trust in Christ. Put your faith in Christ today to save you from your sins. And then for every one of us who are saved, God has a place prepared for us too. We already have heaven, but you know what place for you and I is in the very presence of God. We need to practice his presence. We need to walk with him and be close to him. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Neither loved they their lives, even unto death. Be a true believer tonight. Yes, there's a war in heaven, but they prevail not. Satan prevailed not. Thank God, God is always on his throne. God is always victorious. We have a victorious Savior who enables us to be victorious. Do you claim that tonight?